This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we are going to be discussing medical marijuana cards. How are you doing, Sonia? I'm doing really well. How are you doing, John? Oh, living the dream as always. What are you thinking about this week in addiction medicine? Well, I just wanted to give a shout out to the ASAM Connect discussion boards. If you're an ASAM member, you can join these communities and then get email discussion boards about whatever people are interested in. And I belong to one about primary care and a certain thread was going back and forth about how to get your primary care colleagues interested in treating opioid use disorder. I think the poster was a local addiction medicine and family practice doctor who was a little frustrated because he had a lot of patients who were stable and he felt they could easily be treated by their PCPs, but no PCPs in his community were willing to step up and do this work. So the question was, how do you get your local friends, colleagues, you know, community members to help you and prescribe buprenorphine? So one of the recommendations in this discussion board was that you should focus on younger physicians. The older physicians are a lost cause, but those with more recent residency training are more up to date on opioid use disorder and on how to treat addiction. And many of them have experience with patients on buprenorphine. They've prescribed in residency, both inpatient and outpatient, and are very comfortable with it. There was also some talk about financial incentives, both positive and negative for treating addiction in primary care. And here at St. Max's, we've been working hard to make sure that the structure of our contracts does not disincentivize buprenorphine prescribing. And our health system offers a lot of support for PCPs who want to get into this area. I personally do some mentoring, one-on-one coaching, a lot of conversations about how great this work is to help get people up and running. And we have a lot of PCPs who are prescribing. So I'm really proud of everyone who jumps into this area, but I really just shout out to all PCPs who are doing this work and encouragement to anyone who's not doing it. It's really great. And if anyone wants to email the podcast on ways to get started prescribing buprenorphine, I'm happy to share all of my materials. John, what do you think is the best way to get our primary care colleagues to do this work? Yeah, I think it's interesting you said uh, kind of abandon the, the older clinicians. I do find that actually the younger doctors and the younger people coming out of medical school are, are really kind of embrace uh, this a lot more. I think when I was in medical school, and I'm not that old, although I'm starting to feel old every day, I don't think that I have really any exposure to any addiction medicine other than kind of hearing that that person went to a methadone clinic. But I think that now, like more medical schools are having this as part of the curriculum. I think that medical students and residents, I think, are kind of more compassionate to this being an illness as opposed to like a character defect. And I know um, I get students and and residents on a regular basis, and the students, I think, are planning to come out to my office to do family medicine, which I do a lot of that. But they really do enjoy my half days of addiction medicine when I'm doing that. And oftentimes, I'll say that that's like the the best experience they had and the most interesting part of the the time with me was was actually that clinic. So I'm very optimistic about kind of our our future physician colleagues kind of picking up the, uh, the torch here and running with it. Yeah, I would agree. I know when I was in medical school, addiction was put in the context of toxicology and maybe psychiatry, you know, talked about substance use disorders when we went through psychiatric disorders, but mostly it was toxicology, how to treat overdose and withdrawal from a very kind of pharmacologic standpoint, but almost no discussion of the behavioral aspects of addiction. And now I think also the side effects, the sequelae of addiction are much more severe with fentanyl contaminating everything people are just a lot sicker. 
to than they were when I was in training. So there's a lot more urgency and our trainees are on the front lines of treating addiction. They work in the hospitals, they work in the ERs, they often see patients who don't have insurance or who have poor insurance and who are suffering from addiction. So I really think our trainees are the future of getting PCPs to prescribe, but I'm not going to totally give up on the older docs too. I feel you can teach an old dog new tricks and I've got some older docs I got my eye on for potential buprenorphine prescribers as well. I think more and more, it's going to be just a standard kind of practice, just like the fact that now, you know, PCPs manage SSRIs. At one point, I think psychiatry was doing that. I, I think it's it's clearly in our domain at this point. Yeah. And not just by default, but I think we're the perfect place to treat addiction because it is a multifactorial disease that is hard to pigeonhole into one small area. I think patients do better when they have wraparound support. So I think primary care is the perfect place for treating addiction. So, John, are you ready to talk about this article? Yeah, I'm excited to hear about this. So this article is titled The Effect of Medical Marijuana Card Ownership on Pain, Insomnia, and Affective Disorder Symptoms in Adults. And it's a randomized controlled trial published in JAMA Network Open recently. And I was super excited because it's a genuine randomized controlled trial about medical marijuana. So a little bit of background. Cannabis products are used widely, both medically and recreationally. However, strong clinical research is lacking in this area. Patients get medical marijuana cards for a wide variety of approved indications, including everything from opioid use disorder to menstrual cramps to cancer to ALS. And we all know that if one single medicine claims to treat 100 different diseases in every body system, those claims can't all be true. And these indications are set by legislatures And unlike other FDA-approved medication, there is no research to support these claims. Or if there is research, it's very, very minimal. So there's very little known about the expected outcomes for our patients after they get their medical marijuana cards. And this makes it hard to counsel patients about whether or not they should get one. If a patient asks me, should I try medical marijuana? I'm like, "I, I don't know. Data is lacking about whether medical marijuana is a good treatment for whatever. There are also potential risks to cannabis, which have not been fully explored, especially not in a medical context. So three in 10 U.S. adults who use cannabis develop cannabis use disorder. 23% develop severe cannabis use disorder and many experience tolerance and withdrawal to THC. And we can look to these numbers to get worse as the potency of THC in the available cannabis products increases. Cannabis is also associated with decreased intellectual functioning, with psychosis and schizophrenia. And finally, it's intoxicating, and it's associated with motor vehicle accidents, decreased school performance, more ED visits, more hospitalizations, basically like any other substance that causes intoxication. But again, since cannabis has not been well studied, these risks in a medical context are not quantified, and I can't really tell patients what the risk is going to be if they try medical marijuana. So that's why I was really glad to see a randomized controlled trial about what happens to patients after they get their medical marijuana cards. So John, what's been your experience with your patients after they get medical marijuana cards? Do they usually feel better? Are they happy with their cards? I'll be honest with you. I feel like I get a whole spectrum of kind of responses to this. I think that most people feel that it helps to some extent, although, you know, when you actually ask them to quantify what uh, they feel it helps with. I, I feel like that oftentimes it's relatively vague. I do have a growing number of people that get the card. And then when the two-year period is up and it expires, they've just decided to save their $200 cash and not renew it. And it's hard to give guidance about that, especially like a lot of the conditions that people use it for. I mean, medication is is 
okay at best for. I think of like back pain, for example, where, you know, there's only very few limited options in there that have a lot of evidence behind them. And if you can't take NSAIDs, that's like 90% of the evidence. So it really kind of boxes you in for treatment. I don't know. What do you think? How often are you having this discussion? Well, a lot of my patients do use marijuana, both recreationally and medically. But I don't have a good sample. If I were to run some kind of study using my own patients, the data would be just terminally contaminated because most patients who get their cards are already using marijuana. So they've already determined that it works for them. And so they are happy to get their card and not be at risk of, you know, legal consequences if they were to be caught using marijuana otherwise, because our state does not have uh, legal recreational marijuana. So most of my patients are pretty happy to get their cards. I do have some who've never used marijuana before and are trying it for the first time for a variety of indications. And I see less success with those patients. As you said, they'll try it, but they don't necessarily continue with the treatment. They didn't find it so helpful. So because of that, I was excited to see an actual randomized controlled trial of outcomes after getting your medical marijuana card. So let me tell you the clinical question. Well, you know, one, one thing before I was going to say, you know, it's interesting that, you know, you're right. Often I feel like people do get the card kind of because they're concerned about these legal ramifications. And it's funny, not, not related to my kind of addiction medicine treatment, but I have a patient that works in the legal system at drug court. And, you know, he kind of has basically talked about how the emerging trends over the past several years, it used to be alcohol was really what most people were in kind of like a DUI court for. However, the growing trend now is, is basically intoxication with cannabis. And most patients kind of plead that, you know, it's a medical substance that they have and that that shouldn't count as impairment. So, that, you know, it's interesting. I don't think that having the card really protects you from most of the legal consequences like it's probably assumed. Well, right. Having the medical marijuana card, just like having a legal prescription for oxycodone, does not protect you against the consequences of your behavior if you're intoxicated. Yeah. So let's talk about the clinical question. In summary, just so our listeners know, the clinical question is, what is the effect of obtaining a medical marijuana card on clinical symptoms of chronic pain, anxiety, insomnia, and depression? And what is the effect on cannabis use disorder symptoms? So I want to point out, this is not a randomized controlled trial of medical marijuana. It is a randomized controlled trial of getting your medical marijuana card. This is just very important to remember as we examine this study. So who was in it? It was conducted 2017 to 2020 in Massachusetts, where cannabis has been legal recreationally since 2015. So these patients could easily purchase cannabis if they wanted to. It included adults age 18 to 65 who were seeking a medical marijuana card for indications of pain, insomnia, anxiety, or depression symptoms. It excluded people who had cannabis use disorder at baseline, who use cannabis daily already, who had cancer, psychosis, or some other substance use disorder, except for mild alcohol use disorder or tobacco use disorder. So you could smoke, you could drink, but other substance use disorders were excluded from this study. The mean age was 37. It was 66% women, 82% were white, 28% used at least weekly or more, and 45% had anxiety or depression, 23% insomnia, 33% pain. When we talk about the results, I'll come back to this, but despite having three different chief reasons for seeking medical marijuana in this study, they were all lumped together 
in one group, which I think does make a difference when you're talking about validity. But again, 45% had anxiety or depression, 23% had insomnia, and 33% had pain as their chief reason for seeking out the medical marijuana card. The intervention group, like if you were randomized to the intervention group, you got your medical marijuana card, or rather you were allowed to get your medical marijuana card. If you were in the comparison group, you did not get your medical marijuana card. You agreed to wait 12 weeks, so three months. So they tried to match these two groups at baseline, and then they had one group was randomized just to wait three months, and the other group was told, yes, go do your thing, get your card. The outcomes were assessments done at baseline immediately after card acquisition, and then again at weeks two, four, eight, and 12. They looked at CBD, THC, and other cannabinoids in your analysis. And the primary outcome was a change in symptoms related to cannabis use disorder, anxiety, depression, pain, and insomnia at week 12 compared to baseline. The secondary outcome was general scores, you know, these very various cognitive scores or sort of not cognitive, various outcome scores you can do measuring physical, mental, well-being, and cognitive function. They also had some exploratory outcomes, including rates of cannabis misuse, rates of cravings, rates of pain, catastrophizing, a bunch of other exploratory outcomes, but I'm not going to go into them because, as I said, they were exploratory. So again, just to summarize the question here is, what is the effect of getting your medical marijuana card on your clinical symptoms of pain, anxiety, insomnia, and depression? And what is the effect on symptoms of cannabis use disorder? So what do you think of the clinical question, John? I think it's interesting to kind of look at it from that regard, where it's actually like a randomized control trial to kind of basically randomize people to like the marijuana card to see if it helped with those three common indications. And especially kind of looking at kind of development of cannabis use disorder, something which I think uh, many patients kind of somewhat question the existence of is also kind of very useful information. I think, uh, you know, as we talked before, probably overemphasis on benefits, probably very little emphasis at all about possible harms to this. Yeah, it's it was a pretty fun paper to read. I do want to say something to our listeners and get a little bit journal clubby here. One of the reasons I had fun presenting this article is that it brought up all kinds of issues regarding study design. So medical marijuana research is plagued with selection bias since cannabis is such a widely used product, but also a widely stigmatized product. So you have to look at who agrees to be in studies of cannabis. You have to be willing to be randomized to take cannabis. So people who think it's morally bad or who have tried it and have real negative effects are never even in these studies in the first place. And patients who've had positive experiences with cannabis would be more likely to sign up, especially if they're provided study medication or study cannabis as part of it. So studies of medical marijuana are just just have a lot of problems with selection bias. So you also have to look at who's in this study. So the demographics are mostly white women in their 30s with pain, anxiety, depression, or insomnia. But it's not just those people. It's white women in their 30s with pain, anxiety, depression, or insomnia who are seeking medical marijuana. So if you're going to see if this clinical question can apply to your patients, you have to remember that this data is not going to be relevant to patients who just have these diagnoses. They're going to be relevant to patients who have these diagnoses and want medical marijuana. So it's a subtle difference, but I think it's a really important one. And especially in studies like this, which have totally subjective outcomes, the outcomes are very susceptible to placebo. And if people are pre-selected to already think highly of the treatment, they're more likely to see a positive outcome. So again, 
if a patient expresses doubt or a lack of desire to use medical marijuana, they actually would not be represented in this study. And you couldn't really use the conclusions. That's a good point. Definitely. So let's talk about validity. First thing I want to tell our listeners is that this is a pragmatic trial, meaning that the patients had a lot of freedom in choosing treatment in all areas, except for the one study question, which was the timing of the acquisition of the medical marijuana card. They could choose their cannabis product. They could choose the dose. They could choose the frequency. They could choose whether or not they ever take it. And they can choose any other medical or psychiatric care that they wanted. You had free reign to do whatever you wanted if you were in this study. So again, that's called a pragmatic trial. The goal sample size was 200 patients and they got 186. So it was a little smaller than you would want. And it was carried out at a single site, which limits generalizability. I actually was surprised they got 186 people to sign up for it. Like, I don't know what the incentive was for the patients to be in this study. Basically, you wanted a medical marijuana card and you agreed not to get it for three months. You didn't even get like free medical marijuana or anything. (laughs) So I kind of wondered who signed up for this. It was randomized. And while the patients weren't blinded, some of the assessors were. I think the inclusion and exclusion criteria may have caused some bias, but I actually don't know in what direction. They included patients who agreed to be randomized to wait 12 weeks. So maybe those were people who had less severe symptoms. It included patients who were seeking out cannabis treatment. So maybe they would be more likely to see an effect. They excluded current daily users. But those patients would perhaps be using it daily because it's very effective for them. So maybe they excluded people who would have a positive effect from the medical marijuana card. And it also excluded those who could not get their card immediately. So even if you got randomized into the card acquisition group, if you didn't get your card, you were out of the study. And that includes people who are poor, who are disorganized, who don't have good transportation, that kind of thing. So I I just feel like the inclusion and exclusion criteria definitely led to some bias. And just whoever volunteered for this study would lead to some potential bias of the results. Another thing that concerns me is there was significant contamination between the two groups and a very high crossover rate. So at week 12, 33% of the patients in the delayed card group and 55% of patients in the card group had THC in their urine. So that means that almost half of the patients who got their medical marijuana cards were not actually using cannabis. And a third of the patients in the no card group were actually using cannabis. So that's a huge amount of what we call crossover. And it just muddies the results when you try to compare the two groups. Another thing that concerned me is the mixing of the groups for all the different indications for medical marijuana. So the results are reported as averages over all the patients. But for example, since only a third of the patients in this study sought medical marijuana for pain, but they took an average of the pain score of all the patients in the study. They included the 67% of the people who didn't even have pain as the reason they wanted the card. Hmm. So then in the end, there wasn't a huge difference. But I wouldn't have expected there to be much of a difference since two-thirds of the people didn't even have a baseline pain complaint. So the same could be said for insomnia, anxiety, and depression. The groups were all mixed together. They did report adverse events, which I appreciate, and finally funding was unlikely to cause bias because it was funded by NIDA. So overall, I thought the premise of the trial was good, but I think the validity was weakened by the potential selection bias of patients who have a pre-existing interest in marijuana and the high crossover rate between the two groups, and finally by the bundling of the chief complaints together. And finally, one more time, it is not a study of cannabis, it's a study of medical marijuana cards. So what do you think? Is this a valid trial? I haven't even talked about the results yet. 
Yeah, I think that those points are all pretty valid, right? I think that, you know, basically a pretest probability, having someone kind of believe in the treatment beforehand, I think certainly that selects. There's some patients I know that would never be open to the idea of, of, of medical marijuana, even if there was a strong amount of evidence, so they'd be a good candidate for the, the treatment. So I think that it does kind of speak to that. And the fact that there was so much crossover, you're right, that does kind of make it so that it seems that especially the group that kind of was told to delay and started medical marijuana in the interim that they probably kind of wanted it regardless and was going to feel that it was going to be beneficial regardless of whether or not it really was. So, and I don't know, I think all of us in in primary care and medicine know that certainly uh, a patient's belief in treatment is sometimes stronger than kind of any trial in terms of outcomes. So let's talk about the results. Remember, we want to know if patients who got their medical marijuana cards had improvement in sleep, pain, anxiety, and depression. Also, we wanted to know if they had higher rates of cannabis use disorder. So first, whether or not patients who got their cards actually used cannabis, that's the first question. The immediate card group did use more cannabis than the delayed card group, both by self-report and urine tests. So the people who got their cards did use more cannabis than the group who did not. So there was a difference there. I'll start with the most important finding, and that's insomnia. Patients in the group who got their cards had better sleep than those who didn't. They used a validated score called the Athens Insomnia Scale, where lower is better. And the immediate car group had a decrease in the insomnia score from 12.4 to 7.6, whereas the delayed card group had no real change in their score. This is considered a clinically significant difference. And again, this included all patients who got their medical marijuana card, not just patients who were seeking it out for insomnia. So overall, it really seemed to improve people's sleep and help with their insomnia. That was the most positive finding in this study. The next outcome they looked at was pain. This was assessed using a basic brief pain inventory. You know, the classic rate your pain on a scale of one to 10, where 10 is the worst pain imaginable. The patient's pain levels on average were three out of 10. They went down a little bit over the 12 weeks in both groups, but no difference in the group who got their card versus the group who didn't. Finally, anxiety and depression. Those were assessed using a scale called the Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale. And the average score when you looked at it across all the patients was low enough to be considered almost normal at baseline, and it remained at that almost normal baseline. There was no statistically significant change. There was also a secondary outcome, which was general physical and mental well-being. And patients in the immediate card group had significantly improved mental well-being compared to the patients in the delayed card group. So bottom line is that patients in the study who got their medical marijuana cards had improvements in insomnia and improvements in overall mental well-being, but no improvement on average in anxiety, depression, or pain. So those are the main primary outcomes, except for, which we haven't talked about yet, cannabis use disorder. So what do you think of those first outcomes? I mean, I think that's relatively interesting that, you know, people did have a benefit with some of those outcomes, especially the insomnia outcome. I'd be interested to see the secondary outcome about the cannabis use disorder, though. All right. So adverse events. The authors of this paper actually lead their results section with the most concerning adverse event, which is the development of cannabis use disorder. Remember, they excluded patients with cannabis use disorder at baseline, and they defined it using the DSM-5 criteria, and they found that 17.1% in the immediate car group met criteria for cannabis use disorder at week 12, and none of them met criteria for cannabis use disorder at baseline. This is compared with 8.6% in the delayed card group. 
So these rates and these rates of cannabis use disorder were highest in the patients who had originally sought out the card for depression and anxiety, among whom a whopping 28% met criteria for cannabis use disorder at week 12. Now, this isn't quite as alarming as it sounds at first glance because almost all of them had mild use disorder where you just need two of the DSM-5 criteria and most of them had tolerance as one of those criteria. The other criteria that was most common was taking the substance despite physical or psychological harm. So people knew it was hurting them in some way, but continued to use it. So again, 28% of patients who originally had anxiety and depression developed cannabis use disorder by the conclusion of this study. So that is very concerning. And again, in the group as a whole, 17.1% in the immediate CAR group met criteria for cannabis use disorder again, mild cannabis use disorder at week 12. The only other adverse events were mild, things like nasopharyngitis. And there also were a good number of neuropsychiatric side effects, including the worsening of anxiety in 17% of patients who got their medical marijuana card. What do you think of those adverse effects, John? I thought that that's actually relatively high. I thought that the anxiety kind of component of that was surprising. I thought it was surprising that that percentage of people actually kind of met criteria for cannabis use disorder not really kind of surprised about developing tolerance to kind of chronic exposure to a substance, but certainly kind of having other adverse or health effects certainly is. How about you? What did you take away from it? I was surprised at the high rate of cannabis use disorder, even at even mild cannabis use disorder. But it made me remember that, you know, like I said, back when I was in med school and we, all we talked about was the adverse outcomes and the toxicology of using illicit substances, we talked about marijuana causing paranoia and psychosis. And a lot of patients would put paranoia in the same category as anxiety, that marijuana actually can worsen anxiety in a significant number of people. And it certainly didn't help anxiety on average. So it was a reminder that marijuana actually could worsen anxiety symptoms. And it definitely, you know, shouldn't really be prescribed or recommended as a primary treatment for anxiety. And also just a reminder that tolerance and withdrawal to THC does build up. It's not rare. Yeah. Pretty common. So yeah, I was concerned reading these these adverse effects. Do you think that this uh, article is going to help you in patient care? I think so. To summarize the results, this trial showed that the immediate acquisition of a medical marijuana card led to more cannabis use disorder with no significant improvement in pain, anxiety, or depression. It did lead to improved insomnia symptoms and increased mental well-being, as we said. And mild cannabis use disorder was common with the highest prevalence in those with underlying anxiety and depression. So I think I will continue to tell my patients that while medical marijuana is likely not going to hurt them physically, using more of it can very easily lead to cannabis use disorder. I do not feel I can use the data in this paper to give patients expected outcomes for their symptoms if they try it, because again, it wasn't a trial of the marijuana itself. However, I could tell them that it may help with sleep. And I feel I could say that given the results of this study. But like we said at the beginning, almost all of my patients who get medical marijuana or who get their medical marijuana card are already using the product. And thus they have already judged its risks and benefits for themselves. So it will not likely change my practice. I usually recommend a medical marijuana card as a harm reduction technique to help people avoid you know, legal consequences and unsafe supply that might be contaminated. John, do you think this will change your clinical recommendations regarding medical marijuana? 
I think it's going to be relatively consistent with my previous recommendations. I, I mean, I was happy to see about the insomnia improvement, although, you know, unless you're going to plan to use this indefinitely, uh, marijuana withdrawal often is characterized by prolonged insomnia. So kind of a rebound effect. So I'm not sure that that's something I'm going to be wholeheartedly endorsing. And I do get a lot of patients that, you know, come to me and they say like for anxiety, depression, they want to do something natural. So that's why they, they want to do marijuana in lieu of an SSRI or counseling. But I often kind of like you, I'll, I'll kind of work with them as a harm reduction technique, but certainly I, I, I don't recommend that as primary treatment. And I'll often cite kind of lack of, of evidence for this. So patients are variably receptive to that. I'm just looking forward to more real randomized controlled trials on marijuana because some of these indications like chronic pain, anxiety, depression, insomnia, we don't have great treatments for. You know, I think we have good treatments for anxiety and depression, but we don't have great medications for insomnia or chronic pain. And if cannabis turns out to be that medication, I would love to know about it. So I'm looking forward to more research, but I'm not sure this article is the answer. Yeah, I think that you're right. I think it's like a, it's interesting. It's we've kind of gone around this the reverse order, right? I think it's kind of like being studied now, but it's been to market already for a couple of years in most places, at least our state, other states, much, much longer than a couple of years. But I'm glad to see that we're actually going to have some educated discussions about this moving forward. Well, thank you for discussing this article with me. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, you can email us at addictionmedicinejournalclub at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at addictionmedjc. If you want to hear your comments in your own voice on the air, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us. Original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Audio editing by Angela Olfest. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the article that we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identity. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Have a great day.